The other thing we find about people that work with financial professionals is that they're not just wealthier than those who choose to do it alone. They're actually quite a bit happier. They have three times the global peace of mind, sort of global well-being. They're three times as prepared, and they're much more prepared for an emergency. Hello and a warm welcome to our seventh webinar in our series brought to you by Investech Wealth and Investment, Markets and Investing in the Time of COVID-19. Now, we took a bit of a breather since our last webcast was brought to you, where we had over 7,000 people dialing in from more than 41 countries across the globe. For those of you making a return, we warmly welcome you back. And for those of us who are new to this conversation, welcome along for the ride and be prepared to be informed. I'm Gugule Timfupi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Chief Behavioral Officer at Breaker Capital. Daniel is a psychologist and a finance behavioral expert who helps organizations understand the intersection between mindset and markets. He co-authored a New York Times best-selling book titled Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management. And he's also created an Irrationality Index which monitors and a sentiment to measure uh, the greed and fear in the market on a month-on-month basis. Dan, it's a warm welcome to you all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, and we're certainly looking forward to the insight that you'll share with us. And uh, of course, maybe even sharing some feedback in terms of the temperature in the United States, given that many of us here in South Africa are freezing. But before we get into that conversation, Dan, for many of us, human behavior in the markets has always been a fascinating topic to observe. But now, more than ever, as we face a pandemic, it's created conditions for us to monitor human behavior in times that we've never witnessed before. Now, we're not only dealing with just the fear of financial loss, it goes beyond that, even highlighting fears of existential behavior and concern. Now, this is exacerbated by the lack of human contact, as well as limitations on our movement. In today's webcast, Dan will cover many of these elements in terms of existential fears and how they impact on our financial making decisions over and above the usual behavioral traps that we fall for. As a quick overview, Dan in particular will explore what the long-term psychological impact might be on our economic decision-making, some of the behavioral mistakes that people often make during a crisis, and most importantly, lessons that can be learned and implemented from previous crises that we've experienced. In out of the ordinary times, Investech looks to partner with its clients and guide you through these challenging environments. That's why we tap into our own knowledge pool and also tap into the minds of external experts like Dan, who's joining us today. Daniel, we've set the bar really high. We're looking forward to this conversation. So I guess it's uh, time for you to take the show away and uh, provide us with more of your magical insight. Thank you, Gugu. And hello, everyone, and welcome to our presentation on investing rules for uncertain times. I hope that wherever you are now, that this message finds you safe and secure uh, and doing very well in these troubling times. Uh, It is these troubling times that we're here to talk about today. And in specific, I'm here to give you eight rules that will help you protect your wealth uh, and in some cases, your psychological health through these times of great uncertainty. I wanna jump right in, our time is short today. And I wanna begin by giving you back some control, giving you back some power. Uh, Because this is a time when many people feel adrift, they may feel a great deal of uncertainty, 
and they may feel some hopelessness about their finances. So I want to give you from the very outset uh, the security and the confidence to know that in these times, no matter what is going on in the world, you control what matters most. To buttress this point, I want to share with you the results of the U.S. equity market over the past 30 years. So if you think about the last 30 years in the U.S., it has not been a calm and placid time. We have had uh, huge acts of terrorism. We've had a financial crisis. We've had pandemics. Uh, we've had wars. It has been an, indeed a very, very troubled time. And despite this, the U.S. equity market has returned about eight and a quarter percent per year. That is great news. That in the face of some worry, in the face of some tumult, the market has still returned a very normal, a very normal, very consistent returns. But what is troubling is that the average investor in the stock market has kept only half of that. The average investor has kept only 4.25% of that eight and a quarter percent that the market has given. And why is that? Well, the reason boils down to human behavior. It boils down to greed and to fear and to getting shaken from a plan or shaken from a position. But over time, we find that great success in financial markets has very little to do with anticipating or forecasting what comes next in a wild and unpredictable world. And it has everything to do with sticking to the basics, with contributing every month, with staying the course, with sticking to a financial plan and not panicking. This is the cause of the gap that you see here is the behavioral panic. But if you were able to control that with some of the tips that I will give you today, you stand to capture really exceptional returns, even in the face of some extraordinary tumult. Now you have tuned into this webinar because you are a client or a friend of one of the most esteemed and prestigious wealth management firms uh, in the entire world. And the good news for you is that wealth managers were actually made for times just such as these. So one of the focal points of my research is that I look at the advantages that come to working with a wealth manager versus those who choose to go it alone. And as part of that, I wanna share with you some research out of Canada that compares the wealth building efforts of people who choose to do it themselves versus those who choose to work with a professional. What the research shows is that for those with the short-term relationship, call it five years, they have on average 1.5% uh, 1.5 times rather the wealth of their peers who have done it themselves. But what happens is that over the medium term, when we go to the 10 year range, we find that those who have worked with a, with a wealth manager have twice the wealth uh, of those who have not. And when we look at the long term, 15 years or more, those who have worked with a professional have 2.73 times the wealth of those who have tried to make the decisions themselves. Incredible to think that you could have nearly 300% the wealth of your neighbor who has tried to make their own decisions. Now, when I drilled down into this research to see why people who work with professionals outperform, it's really not for the reasons that most people think. 
Uh, it's not because, in fact, these wealth managers are, are picking the hottest stocks for them. It's not because they have any sort of uh, specific, magical, esoteric knowledge about where the market is going. The best use we find of a wealth manager and the use that accounts for this dramatic outperformance over time is to keep people from making a critical error at a time of great fear. And I think that that perfectly encapsulates and perfectly describes the moment we are living through now. This is the great stage on which wealth managers provide the greatest value. So please lean on her, lean on that person during this time, help them to keep you from making poor decisions. But the other thing we find about people that work with financial professionals is that they're not just wealthier than those who choose to do it alone. They're actually quite a bit happier. They have three times the global peace of mind, sort of global well-being. They're three times as prepared, and they're much more prepared for an emergency. So those of you who are clients of Investec, I want you to think holistically about how your wealth manager can add value to your life. Because money and financial concerns are so central to our well-being that if we can get that piece of our life sorted, so much of the other uh, stuff in life just tends to fall in place. So do not be afraid to lean on those professionals at this time Understand that this is the time of all times that they are adding great value to, their, to your life and let them do the work that they are there to do. The next thing I want to talk about is emotions, because this is a time of great emotion. You know, I was speaking to my Investec colleagues before this began, and they were asking me about the state of affairs in the U.S., and it is candidly a tough time here. It's a tough time here in the US and I know that it's a tough time across the globe. And at times like this, it can become easy to become overwhelmed by emotion, which is problematic because emotion is the enemy of good decisions, financial and otherwise. So for my second book, The Laws of Wealth, I unearthed some research that found that those who are experiencing a period of extreme emotionality, whether it be positive or negative emotions, have their cognitive processing power, so effectively their IQ, their intelligence is diminished by 13%. So it's incredible to think that all the lessons we have learned about how we should operate, about how we should make decisions, we have least access to that know-how at the very moment when we need it most. So it is critical that we learn to manage our emotions and to use our wealth managers to help us keep our emotions in check. Now I wanna speak specifically, you know, Google alluded to this, and I wanna speak specifically to the impact of social isolation and this lockdown that we as a, as a global family have been living through and how that impacts our emotions. Because even pre-COVID-19, we were a world that was profoundly lonely and profoundly socially isolated. Um, Japan and the UK had actually um, appointed ministers of loneliness because the health fallout of loneliness was so tremendous in those countries. Uh, a survey of 20,000 people in the US found that fully half of them 
uh, rated themselves as being very lonely. And this may sound like a, a high class problem or an unimportant problem, but social isolation actually takes an incredible toll on us physically. Uh, research done at my alma mater found that um, loneliness is the equivalent physically to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it is twice as negatively impactful to the body from a public health perspective uh, as being obese. So it's incredible to think then, this is again all pre-COVID-19, it's incredible to think about the explosion of social isolation and loneliness and the associated strong emotions uh, as we live through this unprecedented lockdown. So it's important to understand that times of elevated emotion, whether that be positive emotion or negative emotion, are no time to be making dramatic choices about your financial life or for that matter, your life in general. And I, I'd like to borrow an acronym from the actually the addiction recovery literature. And the acronym is HALT. And HALT stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And we know from the addiction literature that those in recovery should not make decisions, important life decisions, when they are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And I would say that, that this isn't limited to these very specific four emotions, that any period of strong emotion is a bad time to be making huge, sweeping life decisions especially about your finances. We'll give you some resources later in the presentation to manage your own wellness. But again, just at a high level, this is a time for self-care. This is a time uh, to, to exercise as you're able. This is a time to lean on the people in your life, uh, both the professionals and your loved ones, to try and help you avoid these high levels of emotion that can be catastrophic to financial decision-making. The fourth rule that I want to talk about uh, is that you should always do less than you think you should. It's human nature through something called action bias, that when things reach a critical boiling point, when things become very intense like they are now, it is human nature to want to do something. And that's understandable. That's natural. We want to do something. We want to act. And as much sense as that may make in other parts of our lives, it makes very little sense when it comes to our investment decision-making. Now, there was a fascinating study done on action bias among soccer goalies. So when the researchers looked at football goalies, they found that 94% of the time, when there is a shot on goal, the goalie dives dramatically either to the right or to the left to try and stop that shot. But incredibly, what they found was that the goalies stop the most shots the 6% of the time when they are relatively still. They stop the most shots the 6% of the time when they are calm and peaceful and do nothing. And this, my friends, is a metaphor for how you also ought to behave in financial markets. And I would like to share some research to, to back that up right now. First, we know from Nobel Prize winning research from William Sharp that you must get 82% of your buy and sell decisions correct if you are to match doing nothing. Now, let me share with you that most professional money managers are not able to get it right 82% of the time. So you, 
are much, much less likely to get it 82, uh, right 82% of the time. And that is just to be doing nothing. Doing nothing, staying the course is overwhelmingly the thing to do. We also know that 80% of the market returns happen just a fraction of the time. Observe what's happened in the US market over the last two months. We have seen a 40% rebound in the NASDAQ in the last eight weeks. If you missed that eight week period because you were fearful, because you were scared of what was happening in markets, you have missed so much of the return. So the vast majority of market returns happen a very small percentage of the time. So it is important to understand that time in the market is much superior to timing the market. And finally, and most incredibly, let me, uh, let me share the results of a fidelity study done on trading behavior. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Fidelity is a large financial institution based in Boston in the USA. They are huge. They have access to a, a treasure trove of investor data. And they decided to mine that treasure trove to understand who made the best decisions. They looked at the accounts with the best performance and tried to isolate the variables that accounted for that exceptional performance. And what they found will shock you because when they called and contacted the people with the best performance, they had two things in common. And I promise you, it's not the things that you are thinking. The two things that these people had in common was that they had either forgotten that they had a Fidelity account or they had died. So the two best predictors of exceptional market performance were forgetfulness or having passed away. It is incredible to think that the people who were trading and churning and researching were underperformed by those who had passed away or who had forgotten about their account entirely. It is firm evidence that the best thing to do in financial markets tends to be nothing. It tends to be staying the course. The next rule that I want to discuss is that trouble is opportunity. Now, one of the things that we do as a human family is we look at what is going on in the world and we tend to extrapolate out that immediate reality going forward. If things are bad right now, we tend to think that that will persist, that things will continue to be bad. We look for continuity. That is human psychology. But market psychology is mean reverting, meaning that bad times tend to sow the seeds for very good times and very good times tend to sow the seeds for very bad times. So it requires, it requires a dramatic shift in thinking. It requires us to follow the maxim of uh, Sir John Templeton, the billionaire investor, who said that the time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy and the time of maximum optimism is the best time to sell. So I would ask you, as you look around the world, you look at the news, you look at what's going on, is this a time of widespread uh, optimism or is this a time of widespread pessimism? And what should that tell you about how you should proceed? But I don't want to leave it to just uh, quotes. I actually want to give you some data on how every single dip 
in every single market across the world, across market history, has been a buying opportunity. If we look at the US market and we look at the returns over the next year, if we look at the returns over the next year, we find that when we are between zero and 5% of an all time high, so we're when we're within 5% of market highs, the next year's return tends to be 8.3% on average. When the market is down 35% to 40%, the next year's returns, as you might expect from the maximum pessimism quote, they tend to rise dramatically. The next year's returns tend to be 14% on average. Finally, when we look at truly massive drawdowns, 50% or greater, over the next year, the return of the US market tends to be 53%. Again, we see both through the, the, the quotes from these experts and from the actual data themselves, that times of great sadness, times of sorrow, times of tumult tend to sow the seeds for excellent market performance. It is a paradox. It is something that is truly hard to get our human brains around, but it is absolutely the way it has always been. So this is also a time when you are hearing a lot of cataclysmic voices. You're hearing from experts. Um, you're hearing things uh, about how bad it's going to get. You're hearing lots of doom and gloom uh, because candidly, doom and gloom sells newspapers, uh, it sells advertising, uh, and it sells clicks on websites. But I'm here to help inform you and to help make you an informed consumer of financial media. Because it turns out that although the media is uh, full of great people and then media serves a valuable informative function during times like the pandemic, when it comes to the financial media, there's actually a lot of reason historically to be skeptical of the things that they tell us. I want to start by looking at the work of Philip Tetlock. So Philip Tetlock is a, a doctor, a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, who did the first and the most seminal research on how accurate expert predictions were, right? So Tetlock found a number of fascinating things in his study of expert predictions. The first he found was that the more famous the expert was, the less likely they were to be correct. So that's incredible, right? The more famous an expert, the worse their predictions tended to be. It defies logic, but it's explained by the second finding. He found that the bolder the past prediction, the worse the future prediction tended to be. So if you think about how someone gains fame, or a claim as a financial forecaster, they tend to predict something unusual, what financial talking heads refer to as a black swan event, something that is a once in a lifetime uh, guess that they get right. And they rise to fame, they rise to prominence on the back of this uh, strange prediction, this unusual prediction. But the world on average tends to look pretty average. So what happens is these, these professionals, these so-called experts, keep making strong predictions, keep predicting cataclysm, keep predicting outliers, and they tend to be proven wrong over time by a world that on the, on the whole 
gets more and more normal. And then finally, Tetlock found that informing these experts that their predictions had been no good uh, did nothing to chasten or humble the experts themselves. Uh, they were quick to explain away the research, saying that, that uh, they had moved the market or that they had literally changed history through the course of their prediction. So what do we know about experts? We know that the famous ones tend to be wrong. We know that dramatic predictions of past uh, successes tend to fall on their face in the future and that tend to fight the last war, right? We also know from research done into Wall Street analyst estimates. We know that analyst estimates, when we looked at nearly 80,000 of them, we found that they were right only one time in 170. So let me reiterate that. The smartest people in the world at predicting where the market was headed, where individual stocks were headed, were correct one time in 170 across over 78,000 instances. Forecasting the future is enormously difficult and tends to be outperformed by people who just stay the course and follow simple rules. So if experts are so bad, right? If experts are so bad, if financial forecasts are so useless, why do you and I still tune in? Because I'll admit, you know, when I see an article that says this expert predicted the great financial crisis, hear what they have to say about coronavirus, I won't lie to you, I often click, right? I'm often drawn in by the same sorts of, uh, of media propagandizing uh, that draws in anyone else. And it turns out that the reason is a very human reason. It has a lot to do with our brains. Uh, our brains account for about two to 3% of our body weight, but they account for 25 to 30% of our metabolic expenditure in a given day. So even though your brain only accounts for two to 3% of your body, it's burning 25 or 30% of the calories. So we, as a human family, all of us, are always looking for ways to think less. We're always looking for ways to coast or draft off of someone else's hard work. And we're always looking for ways to defer our decision-making to someone who knows more than us. It's why if we see a toothpaste commercial that nine out of 10 dentists choose a certain brand of toothpaste, we might go, okay, then, then I'll just do that. You know, I'll just buy that toothpaste. But what we see in brain scans of people who are hooked up to brain scans while wa watching financial news is that the part of their brain associated with critical thinking and decision making actually goes to sleep while they are watching financial news. Now, this is human nature. We are always going to want to defer complicated decisions to someone else. But let me say to you that there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. The wrong way to do this is to defer that decision-making to some catastrophic talking head on a news channel who knows nothing about you, nothing about your risk tolerance, nothing about your family, uh, and nothing about your goals or dreams. The right way to do that is to work with a professional wealth manager who knows all those ins and outs of your life intimately and can help you make personalized decisions about what is right for you. It's been said by a great investor that the most dangerous words in investing are this time is different. 
And even though many of us know the right thing to do, we know to stay the course, we know to continue contributing to our accounts, we know to remain diversified, we know all of these things. But this situation, as singular as it is, as uncertain as it is, uh, it can seem different. It can seem like an exception to the rule. And I'm here to tell you that the rules apply. This time is not different uh, and you are not different because there's another piece of human nature that's to think that we know better. And psychologists like myself refer to this uh, clinically as overconfidence. And it's something that all of us suffer from. It's something that all of us suffer from. It is again, part of the human condition. And it's actually a good thing because overconfidence gets us out of bed in the morning. Uh, it makes us happier perhaps than we ought to be. It encourages us to take risks uh, and, to, and to get out there in ways that might otherwise be scary. But if we apply overconfidence to the world of investing and think that we are luckier uh, or think that we are smarter or that we are better or that we are different than the rules that we know to be true, uh, it can be quite dangerous. Now, I'm going to pick on men here because I am a man and it's easy to do, right? Men do on average display more overconfidence than women, but I do not want any women listening to think that they are off the hook. You may not be uh, as overconfident as men, but this is something that impacts uh, all of humankind. So a study I found, a study of 700 men that I cited in my second book, The Laws of Wealth, found that 95% of men thought they were funnier than average, 100% uh, of men thought that they were friendlier than average, and that 94% of men thought that they were more attractive and athletic than average. Uh, that, my friends, is not how averages work. And the same things apply to the world of investing. 90-something percent of investors think that they know better, that they can do better, that they can beat the market, that they can time the market, and I am here to burst that bubble. I am here to tell you that the rules apply to you and that consistently we find that people who follow simple rules in the market uh, really outperform those who try to go it on their own or try to make individual discretionary decisions. As I begin to wrap up here, I wanna also uh, reemphasize that this is a time for remembering your why. Now, your goals, your values, and your dreams may seem disconnected from the dollars and cents numerical analytical world of investing, but I'm here to tell you that there are some really profound psychological reasons why leading with your goals and values and keeping them at the forefront of the conversations you are having with your wealth manager are critical to you making good decisions. Again, looking at the U.S., uh, stock flows from, uh, from 07 to 11. So this is equity fund flows to, to describe this. We're looking at how much money is coming into stocks versus how much money is being pulled out of stocks. And so if we look at the U.S. from 2007 to 2011, on the whole, people were pulling money out of stocks. They were scared. They were going to cash. They were fleeing to safety. But there was one place where people continued to contribute. There was one type of fund where people continued to contribute, where their behavior was better and where their returns, of course, were better. And that was college savings accounts for children. 
that was the only place where people managed to let the yes of a dream be bigger than the no of their fear. Now, I have cited a number of studies here, but I want to cite my absolute favorite study of all time. And I'll do so on a personal note. You see there on the screen, that's my family. That's my wife and my three children who are, who are my why, right? So that's my family. They're why I get out of bed in the morning. They're why I work uh, as hard as I do. And the study in question found that when people, uh, when low-income savers, people who were barely scraping by and, and didn't have much money to save, when they looked at a picture of their children for five seconds before making a financial decision, they saved two and a half times as much as a control group. So it's incredible to think that something as simple as remembering why you started this investment journey, remembering who this money is for, remembering the real life, real life dreams that it funds can be a very, very powerful hedge against making poor behavioral decisions. So as I wrap up here, as promised, I want to share something with you uh, that I hope is of personal use to you. We're going to stop talking about money now, and we're going to talk about how you can take care of yourself. Uh, because as you've heard throughout my presentation, taking care of yourself is central to taking care of your wealth. So I want to share with you a, a five-part model for doing just that, a five-part model for increasing your happiness and wellness uh, at a time when happiness and wellness may be harder than average to find. So this model was uh, pioneered by a doctor by the name of Martin Seligman at one of the uh, prestigious Ivy League colleges uh, in the Northeastern United States. And what he did really revolutionized the world of psychology uh, because whereas psychologists historically had looked at what makes people sad or what makes people broken or anxious, he looked at what makes people great. Uh, he, worked at, he looked at what makes people happy, what makes people fulfilled, and found these five things uh, were, the, were the model that explained what made great people great. He first found that happy people had positive experiences in every day and in every week. Now, positive experiences is just clinical jargon for just having fun. This is laughing. This is being lighthearted or goofy or doing something uh, fun with friends, uh, doing something, you know, a, a dance party with your family in the kitchen while you clean the dishes. This is having a bowl of ice cream. Whatever this looks like for you, it's just good old lighthearted fun. The second thing he found, though, is that hard work was also a part of the formula for happiness. The second thing he found was that truly happy people had deep levels of engagement. They were involved in a hobby or work that was immersive. They were involved in a hobby or work that was so profoundly engaging to them that they lost track of time. Many of us think that, that happiness is all about just bliss and joy and these positive experiences, this lightheartedness, but that's not it. Our lives need hard work just as, uh, just as surely as they need relaxation. So make sure that you have a proper balance uh, of both. 
I talked before about social isolation and how damaging it can be. Uh, there is a reason why prisons uh, here in the States have actually outlawed social isolation as a form of punishment in prisons because it is so punitive, it is so hurtful. And it can be very hard during lockdown to connect with people. But I am here to tell you that relationships are more important today than they have ever been. Uh, connecting with the people in your life is more important today than it has ever been. And so this is a time to foster those relationships. And as a general rule, the more like an in-person interaction it can be, the better off you will be. So uh, a Zoom call is, is preferable to a phone call. A phone call is preferable to a text. And a text is preferable to, to nothing at all. So whatever it, it requires of you to connect with those that you love, do that. It's a big part of what will make you whole. The fourth thing in this PERMA model is meaning, which is working for something bigger than yourself. This could be service. This could be charitable giving, meditation, or religious practice, whatever that looks like for you. It is getting outside of yourself. It is doing something bigger than money, bigger than you, and finding a way to contribute. And I would say to you, that it has never been easier. It's never been easier to find meaning because there are opportunities everywhere uh, to contribute to the fight against COVID-19. There are opportunities everywhere to reach out, to connect, and to make the world a better place. The last one uh, is advancement. This is the human tendency to want to be better today than we were yesterday. And a lot of people have joked that the days in lockdown just kind of run into each other. And I can certainly, certainly empathize uh, with Saturday looking a lot more like Tuesday than it did a few months ago. But it's important for us to keep track of our goals, to set goals every day. And even though we may not hap uh, happen to know what will be going down six months from now, what the world will look like a year or two years from now, we can win the day. We can set goals each and every day that keep us pushing forward and we can monitor, monitor that progress uh, en route to becoming the people uh, we were born to be. So in my closing slide, I just want to say, uh, I want to share with you the reason that I'm optimistic. Uh, because being an investor is rooted in optimism. Investing in markets is a belief that the future will look better than the present. That's all it is. It's to think that the world will look a little bit brighter, a little bit better tomorrow than it does today. And I want to tell you that my belief in, in that is, is rooted in the fact that never since, you know, not since World War II, has the whole world been so united in a common fight. The whole world is united in a common goal, in a common fight, and I would never, ever bet against humanity. I have no idea what will happen in the markets. I won't be one of the experts that I told you about that will try and make a bold prediction. But if you look at the U.S. market in previous pandemics, SARS, MERS, Ebola, and swine flu, every single one of those years, the market ended up double digits. And I do not know if that's what will happen this year, but I can say safely that I am optimistic about the future and that I would never bet against humanity. Stay safe,
be good to each other. And I hope that these lessons about investing in uncertain times will help you take care of your health and your wealth on the way to becoming the person you were meant to be and reaching those goals. Thank you. Dan, thank you so much for that wonderful presentation. You've certainly given us quite a bit to think about. And uh, of course, we want to delve even further into your understanding and, and uh, concept of what you've observed given the lay of the landscape, landscape that we're experiencing at the moment. We do have some phenomenal investor clients who have shared some of their questions with us, Daniel, and we're going to highlight some of those now and uh, address the first question. This first question probably takes us back to the why, understanding why we invested in the market, why we want to build wealth. And the first question asks, is the psychological impact the same across macro and micro investors? And I guess this is for all parties that are involved in creating wealth, the psychological impact of the wealth manager, of somebody who is looking to sustain their wealth at the level that they're at, versus somebody who might be looking to create and build wealth in the current environment that we're in. So you're, uh, you are exactly right, that this has primarily to do with an investor's why. And so the responses to the types of market risks that we're seeing will be as varied and as nuanced as those individual whys, which is why it's so important to work with a wealth manager who understands that. So when we look at accounting for investor behavior, there's really three things that we're looking at. We're first looking at risk tolerance which is someone's long-term attitudes about risk and reward trade-offs, that's gonna be heavily influenced by their why. Are they trying to grow and accumulate wealth? Are they trying to maintain? Are they somewhere in between? So the risk tolerance, those long-term attitudes about risk-reward trade-offs will be one pillar. Uh, the second pillar uh, is actually risk capacity. So this is the person's timeline and their level of wealth. So someone with a very long timeline uh, is more immune to the bumps and bruises of a volatile market than someone who is nearing retirement, of course. And then someone with a great deal of wealth uh, is, of course, more immune to market volatility uh, than someone whose wealth is more constrained. The final piece is where, where I come in. The final piece is risk composure, which is basically that, le that person's level of, of anxiety or that person's level of worry and how likely they are to get bumped off track by their sort of individual psychology. So it's really gonna vary wildly by market participants. And it's the reason why you need an expert in your personal economy. Goes back to the emotions, as you say, uh, and managing those efficiently with a professional. We move on to another question. The question asks, how important will behavioral finance become in informing economic forecasts going forward? So I think it's in incredibly important. You know, the, what you're hearing today in the market is people uh, wailing about how disconnected the market is from what we're seeing out on the streets. You know, here in the U.S., again, apologies, uh, I, I live here, so this is what I see all the time. You know, we have riots, we have protests, we have the spread of the pandemic. I mean, and then the market is, is soaring. And so people want to understand why. And the reason is candidly behavioral. You know, efficient or sort of historical models of economic forecasts say that the market perfectly accounts for all information that's in the marketplace. Behavioral models say, yes, 
the market accounts for all information in the marketplace, but does so through the emotional lens of investors. The emotional lens that is most prominent right now in the U.S. is that the Federal Reserve will do anything and everything to backstop assets. And so despite all of the pain and struggle you see uh, in the U.S. right now, you see soaring markets because that behavioral lens is what is informing that view. Uh, if that changes, I think uh, the markets will change dramatically potentially. So it, it really has less to do with fundamentals in many cases and more to do with behavior. It's also important, again, one of these hard behavioral paradoxes, it's important to understand that the market is forward looking. Most people look around and go, well, look, things are still bad. The, the unemployment is still high. The pandemic is still raging. There's, uh, you know, riots in the streets. Why is the market soaring? Well, the market priced that in and has already moved past that in many respects. So it's important for investors to understand that there is no all clear signal. The market will be, you know, topping out well before the view from the street looks safe. And that's important to understand as well. I'm glad you alluded to that because that is top of mind for many investors who do have exposure to uh, the U.S. equities environment. And perhaps just to sidestep for a bit, do you believe that we'll ever come to a time where social unrest or social developments will have an impact on capital markets at all in the future? Uh, it, it would be extremely it would be extremely hard to forecast. But one of the things you can say, un unfortunately, there is a there is a history. Uh, there is a history of racial strife. There is a history of rioting in the U.S. Uh, who has mismanaged its race relations for really hundreds of years. And so in, in some ways, uh, this, is, this is horrifying. I mean, there's much that needs to be done from a social perspective. Uh, but from a market perspective, in some ways, sad to say, it's, it's nothing new. And so you have to sort of understand that disconnect between the social realities the, the realities of, of human beings good to uh, being good to other human beings and how that will impact markets, because I think it's uh, potentially two different conversations. Dan, to bring it back to the pandemic, of course, uh, and uh, COVID-19, which is a threat to the world over, uh, another question here alludes to uh, understanding just how much of a significant behavioral change will we from the pandemic? Um, and do you think that people will quickly return to their old habits? So there's a bias in psychology that I alluded to earlier without naming it. It's, it's known as durability bias, which is the human tendency to project the present moment out into the future indefinitely and to think that the future will look a lot like the present. I, I mentioned in my presentation that whereas we tend to look for constancy, markets tend to be mean reverting. So what you have right now is a lot of think pieces and a lot of articles and a lot of prognostication saying, you know, the realities that we're currently experiencing, like work from home uh, and things like this will persist at their same levels into the future indefinitely. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think the world will be forever changed by uh, COVID-19, uh, much the same way that uh, air travel was perhaps changed by 9-11 and associated events. But what I don't think is that it will persist at the level or to the degree to which people think now. 
Um, the future will probably look more like the past uh, than we think now. So I do think it will change, but I think it will change less than most people think today, given how immersed we are in this particular situation. You also raised a valid point earlier in terms of experts, right? And uh, uh, many investors following the trend in terms of what the experts say regarding their predictions and then coming back to actually justify any uh, fallacies that would have been identified. And another question uh, that uh, has been interlinked here is understanding which particular sectors might see financial strain or strife or maybe even a recovery. And in particular, this one refers to the office real estate market, given that uh, the pandemic has led to lockdowns individuals working from home, schools also subsequently being closed, that perhaps office won't be a viable investment for them anymore. Using that as an example, does that also lead to, again, human behavior and investment behavior leading us to certain sectors um, of investment opportunities, um, whether we buy or sell out of them? So without uh, uh, recommending that people buy or sell any sector in specific, I think that this durability bias uh, applies to commercial real estate, right? Now, right now, commercial real estate, uh, commercial REITs are wrecked because the, the consensus opinion is that, well, everyone's just going to work from home. Everyone's just going to Zoom call for the rest of eternity. Uh, I, I think that's overstated. Now, have we also discovered that many people work perfectly well from home? Um, yes, I think we have discovered that. So I think it will change the, uh, the office landscape, but I doubt that it will change it to the degree that we now uh, think that it will. Human beings are social creatures. There is a lot that gets accomplished face-to-face, elbow-to-elbow, that is hard to convey um, over a screen. And so I think that it will be impacted, no doubt, but I imagine that the impact will be less than we think it is today. An interesting question as a follow-up and one that you alluded to earlier in your response. Uh, this one asks, central banks and government intervention continues to dominate markets more and more as monetary policy and fiscal policy become more extreme. How does the disconnect uh, between asset markets as well as the real economy tie back into investment behavior? Yes, yeah, so this is the, the million-dollar question. This is the narrative that is driving markets right now. That is the lens, as I mentioned, through which all behavior is being viewed. Uh, there seems to be, at this point, uh, no, uh, no social contention, uh, no news about the virus that is strong enough to overcome the tsunami of money that has been poured into the market. Uh, but that is, of course, subject, subject to change. I, I don't know that it will change. Uh, but if it does, and we begin to look through a different emotional lens, I think you'll see uh, a different outcome, whatever that outcome looks like. Now, uh, in terms of the big fear here, the big fear is inflation. And again, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and criticize experts and then try and predict, <laughs> predict the future myself. But what I would say is that, uh, you know, no one really knows. Uh, here in the U.S., we thought that the effect of uh, we thought that the effect of the stimulus of 0809, which was likewise huge, we thought that the effect of that would be inflation, and it wasn't. You know, really, really smart people thought that inflation would follow the types of hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus we saw in 0809, and it just it never materialized. So there certainly are inflationary forces, right? This sort of Fed stimulus is 
of course, inflationary on paper, but we also have deflationary forces. Unemployment is deflationary. Cheap oil is deflationary. The internet is deflationary. All of these things are, are working in opposition. It's a complex dynamic system. I, I, I do not know what the, what the outcome will be, but I think it's wise to look at history and go, it's not always as simple as Fed stimulus equals inflation. Uh, because historically, it's been a little more complicated than that. Dan, I think for many of us who have been uh, viewing and participating in this conversation, we know that you can't predict the future. We know that uh, you are an observer of human behavior. And there's one critical element you alluded to earlier on in your presentation, which is uh, some successes in terms of investment returns are either because people forgot that they had investments with Fidelity or the fact that they passed away. And this, I think, is a contradiction for many of us as human beings because we are innately emotional. We are innately forced to react to circumstances and situations. How should we as clients, how should we in our interactions with our wealth managers, again, be reminded and reinforce that discipline of just not doing anything at times? Yeah, it's very, it's very, very hard to do. So I, I, will, I will say two things. So the first thing is I think good behavior is predicated on, on three legs of a stool. Uh, the, the three legs of the stool are education, um, environment, and encouragement. So education is understanding. What's what you, what you learned today. You know, I told you about the research on why doing nothing makes sense. So keep reading books about why this is the case. But, you know, the basics of education you've got. Right? The next thing is environment. You need a portfolio that is balanced enough that you can take the ride. You don't want to be in a portfolio that, that is so volatile that you can't sort of exist in that world. And then the last thing is encouragement, which is where your wealth manager comes in, because there will still be moments when you are emotional. Now, it, it shocks people to, to know that I work with a wealth manager. Like I am myself formerly an, an investment manager. I've written you know, many books on, on market behavior. If anyone should be able to manage their own money, I should be able to manage my own money. And yet I pay a wealth manager to manage my money because I know that the rules apply to me. I know that I am just as emotional. I know that I am just as short-sighted as the next person. And I need that encouragement. I need that person to slap the bad decision out of my hand uh, when I'm about to make it. So those are sort of the three things, the, the three legs of a stool of good behavior, I think. Dan, a trick question for you. So when you're overtaken by emotion and you conflict as to which investment decision you make, does that lead you to the guitars in the background in order to vent out your frustrations? It, do, it does lead me to the guitars in the background. I have promised the Investec universe that I will play the South African national anthem at our next meeting. So I'm, I'm as good as my word. I will begin working on that today. <laughs> well, we thank you so much for that. We're certainly looking forward to it and we'll be sure to open up our next webinar with your musical feature. I just might add vocals. Maybe don't hurt me to that. Perfect. Perfect. 
Dan, thank you so much for your time. You've certainly given us a lot to think about in terms of our behavior and of course the psychological elements that we need to bear in mind, not only during the COVID-19 pandemic, but even post how we interact with our money, how we interact with the managers of our money, and most importantly, understand and evaluate the lay of the landscape. But we certainly will be empowered to be more mindful of our reasons why we choose to invest, being more critical in the decisions that we take, and sometimes just relying on the fact that keeping calm and carrying on is actually the best thing to do. We thank you as invested clients for joining us for this informative conversation and look forward to hosting you in our next webinar. But in the meantime, please do be sure to stay safe, keep healthy, invested, will continue to take care of your wealth. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorised financial services provider and member of the JSC.